Hello, and welcome to How to Eat in 2022 by the author of How to Eat with One Hand, Emma Knight. And me. That's right. Emma has written not one, but two entire cookbooks, and I have not one, but two entire recipes in my repertoire. Yum, yum. And yes, that includes pasta. That's not entirely true. I really do want to hear those two recipes. But first, I have to I have to interject on your behalf because I've cooked with you many a time, Monica, and I happen to know that you are a deft hand with red peppers and couscous and various sauces. You also have a great love of flavor, having started on the blue cheese and balsamic train at age, oh, I don't know, six months or so. And loving flavor is surely a prerequisite for cooking. According to my dear husband... I'm a little heavy-handed on the sauce. Oh, Mark, nothing to complain about. Okay, well, listen, I do recognize, having been to your place recently, that there's been a little bit of a, a lapse, shall we call it, in terms of the contents of your fridge and pantry. You are very well-stocked on the closet front. There are no problems there. <laughs> but in the spirit of the new year, you know, new us, new beginnings and all that, let's save you from having nothing but speculos for breakfast, shall we? or at least give you something to have with those delicious morsels of crunchy Belgian cookie magic. Oh, speculos are from Belgium, not France? I never knew that. So obviously we've been friends since we were two, but I can't really put my finger on how and when exactly you got really into cooking. I mean, I do know that your dad is a brilliant chef. I've had the pleasure of attending his superb dinner parties many times. Uh, I even know that he astonishingly never leaves a trace of his cooking before you sit down to dinner, which is something I admire and have never even come near imagining being capable of. But when uh, was your like aha moment? And also follow up. Do you think that cooking is a nature or nurture skill? Honestly. So I'm going to answer your second question first, because I think for some people it is nature, like my dad, for example, and really every member of my family, except for me, it is nature. They're really good at cooking naturally, and they have a sense of flavor and a sense of what would go well with what, and even timing. My dad really emphasizes the importance of timing in cooking. I'm someone with no natural sense of rhythm whatsoever. And I was the pickiest eater in the history of the world until I was like 16 years old. So for me, I would say cooking has been much more nurture than nature, which bizarrely I think makes me a pretty good cookbook writer because the process of writing a cookbook has to do with like transcribing the magic into a followable formula. And given that I am not, you know, my dad will just like waltz around dashing things into a pan, never keep track and whip up something miraculous and I'm the one chasing him with a pen being like wait 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 what did you just do and so I think the best chefs use cookbooks more just for inspiration and those of us who are more kind of starting or looking for yeah like a way to dip their toe into the waters of the culinary arts are more likely to follow a recipe to the line at least at first you know it's like painting a landscape or something that's realism before abstract. And for me anyway, I got into cooking through Greenhouse. So the beverage company that I co-founded with my husband and our other partner, Hannah James, back in 2014, we make plant-based beverages. We always intended to start selling food. The beverages kept us too busy. Very long story short, our blog was filled with plant-based recipes because we really wanted to emphasize like how simple and delicious it is to mostly eat plants. And those recipes and that blog turned into the greenhouse cookbook. So my first kind of foray into cooking very seriously was translating a bunch of other people's recipes and then translating some of my family's best recipes into plant-based versions for this cookbook, which was a collaboration with my sister-in-law, Diva Green, and her now husband, Lee Reitelman, as well as Hannah James. And anyway, it was a really collaborative process, and it taught me so much about cooking and about what it is to write a recipe. And then that has inspired huge amounts of cooking at home. Fast forward, we had a baby and then another, and now we're feeding a family. How to Eat with One Hand, the most recent book, is really about cooking in the turbulent times of new parenthood. But for me anyway, it's been a skill that I've practiced and learned. And I think I have honed the kind of natural ear for cooking that other people maybe have right at the beginning. And I think that like unusual route has actually really benefited me. 
That, so, that's interesting. Okay. Well, it definitely <laughs> seems natural when you're in the kitchen now. Well, I'm no longer afraid of fruits and vegetables like I was as a child. So, you know, that's a plus. That helps. <laughs> okay. So I guess an, uh, something that always intimidates me is just figuring out what I need to always buy and stock and have on hand to be able to create these kinds of plant-based recipes, which I love too. And to be completely honest, I order and take out a lot from great local cafes, but I am not always in the habit of having the proper ingredients in my fridge or freezer and just whipping it all up myself. So what would be some pointers? Yeah. Okay. Well, first a quick note on more plants more often, which is kind of like our slogan at Greenhouse. The idea here is that you don't have to go 100% plant-based, but we're talking about how to eat in 2022. I mean, I personally am really not poo-pooing eating local meat, you know, once or twice a week. Exactly. It no longer has to be your fallback position. Like if plants can be the default, then everything else is even more exciting. And something to look forward to and treat it as like a, you know, something special. And plants are also something special. But yeah, just for our health, that of the planet, you know, the more plants, the more often, the better. So because every morning is like a little mini January, you get a chance to start off on the right foot. And so I'm going to start with what to have in your freezer and pantry and fridge so that you can start your morning in a happy smoothie way. Um... Thankfully, both of my toddlers absolutely love smoothies, which is great because it means I can give them heaps of spinach and kale for breakfast without them even knowing it and then kind of go into the day worrying less that they might only eat crackers. So what you should have in your freezer are frozen bananas. You can also do it with a non-frozen banana, but it actually makes it much creamier if the banana's frozen. Pro tip. So then other frozen fruit, so you can buy fruit in season and then freeze it, like blueberries, raspberries, cherries, whatever you like, even tropical fruits, depends where you live, what you're into, and then lots of greens, which you can keep in the freezer or the fridge, so spinach, kale. And you're saying you won't taste the green, because I'm thinking about making this for my daughter as well, you don't taste the greens? In this one, you don't, because what I always include in my smoothies, and I know this will speak to your condition, even if it doesn't speak to your available resources shopping wise in Paris is nut butter. So you've got your fruits and veg. The berries definitely help already. Like the banana is really, really sweet. And then the berries too. And that already helps to mask the flavor of the spinach or kale, which is very mild. So you've got those things. You put them in your blender. I always use a plant-based milk or water with extra nut butter or nuts. And then a little bit of ice. And then the key for me is the nut butter. But what I've experimented with most and what will work for you is you do not need it to already be in butter form because blending turns it into butter. So you could just put a handful of nuts into your smoothie and you'll have the same effect. To make them taste even better, roast them first. So you can take a whole bunch of almonds or whatever you like, walnuts, peanuts, like cashews. I know you're big on cashews. You can just toast them in your oven at about 350 until they're really brown and smell amazing and then let them cool off. Keep those in a jar in your pantry and then put a big handful of those into the smoothie and it will taste like you've added nut butter. And I would say that cashew is the king of nuts, yes. So yeah, you've got your fruit, you've got your veg, you've got your plant-based milk, you've got your creamy nuttiness, which also adds the healthy fats and protein that keep the smoothie from just being a sugar spike in the morning. And then you can add oats, which I love to do, like a just rolled oats. You could add a date if you wanted it to be a little bit sweeter. You can add a little bit of vanilla. You can certainly add cacao powder or cocoa powder if you want it to taste really chocolatey. That's actually super healthy. It has fiber and antioxidants and it doesn't have any sugar the sweetness will come from the fruits and the bananas so you know the world is your oyster and then you blend that up and breakfast is ready in under 10 minutes and the only thing that you need to have in your refrigerator is that plant-based milk everything else can live in the freezer or the cupboard so you can come back from a two-week I don't know silent retreat somewhere or (laughs) whatever is allowed vacation wise these days and blend up your smoothie Okay, thank you. I'm definitely going to do this. I'm actually thinking about whether I have time to go buy all those ingredients this evening so I can make it for everyone tomorrow morning. So I'm very inspired. Ooh, well, in a fortnight, I'm going to ask you how that went. (laughs) So this smoothie recipe and all the recipes we talk about on today's episode will be in the show notes.
Okay, that was our breakfast recipe. And to keep me on my toes, we've also got a lunch recipe and then later a dinner recipe coming up. I am going to be a master chef by the end of this episode. And we're also going to take you around the globe. So all aboard the imaginary train over here to Paris, where we're going to get a really delicious recipe from a French chef and cafe owner, Café Pimpin's Amy Touton. A few facts about Amy. She's really badass. She's actually an ex-army officer. She did a tour in Afghanistan. She is half English, half French, and perfectly bilingual, and also culturally she feels like an English woman, but also feels like a French woman. It's it's interesting because obviously one of her parents is English and one of her parents is French. So she really brings the culture of both, including the food buzzing London food scene of the past few years where she has lived and this sort of new modern approach to cooking in Paris to her work. She f- owns with her sister and their associate Café Pampin in Paris, which there are two locations now has become one of the go-to places for brunch on weekends or to go and have a healthy breakfast or lunch or coffee during the daytime, you know, with your laptop or a book. It's kind of bringing a very international approach to the Paris cafe scene and kind of lunch spot scene, which traditionally, you know, you're going to picture a cafe de flore, kind of old school, brasserie style cafe, which is lovely too. We love that. But, you know, they never want you to stay with your laptop. The waiters are typically very grumpy and it's just not the same scene. This is a really inviting, open-minded kind of international feel. And her plant-led recipes are delicious. So I guess let's just get into it. Here is Amy talking me through her go-to salad recipe for ledger. So we're at Café Pampin in Paris, one of the locations, because there's two locations yep. now, aren't there? Exactly. So we're on Rue Guimauquet. There's a bit of service still going on here. It's some lunchers. Late lunches, very late lunches. Coffee drinkers, would you say? Um, yeah. Yeah. People like, having their goûter. Yeah, their goûter <laughs> after after uh, school. Exactement. And there's people working on their laptops and stuff. So it's a really nice place that people just come and hang out aside from, from eat. And you have all-day service, which not everyone in Paris does. Yeah, exactly. So I think the concept of Café Pampa, which, by the way, was uh, started by my sister and um, one of her closest friends, is to make it a kind of neighborhood canteen where people could just come in all day long be it to eat, to work, to socialize, to have meetings. And the idea is that we kind of cook home-cooked um, fresh food every day. Um, so that's us, and we kind of put a big value on seasonal produce, so we try as much as we can, except to the avocado, unfortunately, mm-hmm. <laughs> to work with uh, seasonal produce. So and you do great coffee, too, and which is what you guys can coffee. hear in the background. The coffee machine is going constantly because people definitely seem to come in. Yeah, for... we do great coffee, which and our, coffee's, um, our coffee roasters are you know, a kilometre from us, and we've been working with him from the beginning. So, um, yeah, we've got a kind of great team of local suppliers working with us. That's so cool. So let's talk a little bit about the food scene in Paris in general, because if anyone knows about it, it's you. And, and, and I should say your family, your sister is obviously does this cafe with you. And uh, your, your brother's also a chef. How would you say that the Paris food scene has changed in, in the past few years? Because I think when a lot of people around the world picture Parisian restaurants, they would picture, you know, a, a lot of sauces and meat and heavy food not necessarily the kind of modern thing you're getting here having lived in Paris and in London when I was young anyway always thought that Parisian food was quite dull and slightly overrated but I think it's gone through a revolution in over the last 10 years with the kind of bistronomy movement where people uh, restaurateurs restaurateurs have decided to kind of provide a really simple and honest experience to their customers so you know the food's not covered in these really thick sauces and flobby in front of you. Instead, they just kind of let the ingredient speak for itself. And also there's been lots of international chefs who've come to work in Paris and that's brought a bit more, a bit of a, a twist to, to French food and made it slightly more interesting. Yeah, it's really diversified, I feel like. There's a lot of uh, focus on, on local uh, produce, I've noticed, and a lot of sort of sharing plates, which is perhaps yeah. not... 
not the most COVID positive, but it's it's a really it's a really fun and like bustling scene. So so okay, you're gonna teach me a good lunch recipe here, and I'm seeing you uh, prepare a delicious looking shashuka, which is a dish I know I love. Don't know how to make it, but I love it's it. It's so easy. It's a very actually we could have done that, but well I thought, we can do that next. We time. can do that next time. That's a very easy one, which people absolutely love. And then I think. You've got a salad prepared, a hearty salad prepared. Yeah. yeah so um, at Cafe Pampin, we do we do you know home cooked food every day, and we've got customers that come in some on a daily basis. So we cannot be lazy, and also we have the opportunity to be extremely creative in our food, and we make different you know salads every day. Some Amazing. people might find it a bit daunting. However, we have a kind of formula which works. Obviously, you can do other stuff, but our salads are based. Uh, kind of, we start with a grain or pulses, so you no, know, be it bulgur or quinoa or lentils, rice, whichever you want. Uh, then we'll kind of choose a seasonal green, kale, uh, iceberg or lettuce. Um, so those are kind of that, that's your base. You've got your grains and your pulses, followed by your leafy greens. Then you pick kind of the vegetable or two of your choice. In winter, we tend to roast those vegetables just because mm-hmm. they seem to be more of a kind of root variety, mm-hmm. uh, the seasonal winter stuff. And then in summer, usually raw raw courgettes or raw anything you want. I always like to add something a little bit naughty because Ooh. I'm not a salad person. So, mm-hmm. for example, today we're going to cook a sweet potato salad, so roasted sweet potato salad with bulgur, green leaves with some grilled halloumi and then mm-hmm. a really nice tahini dressing. I love halloumi, and I feel like it really caught on in London when I was living there as well, but it's not necessarily something you find everywhere in Paris. I remember you telling me about your dilemma of not being able to find halloumi. Luckily enough, our suppliers we work with, from Rangis, kind of find most of the stuff we want. So halloumi is one of the things we have access to. Wow. Okay. Well, this is a special treat. Okay, so can you tell us about the dressing we're going to make and what kind of ingredients we need to have on hand to be able to whip off a good dressing at any point? Because I I never know. I just always make two parts oil, one part vinegar, and a shitload of mustard because... As panoras. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which is, do you know what? A good vinaigrette is amazing. And I actually have a... My green salad is tossed in vinaigrette. Okay. But then on on the salad itself, so that the sweet potato is not just left alone. Right. I kind of add a dressing over the hot entire salad just to kind of keep it all together. That sounds like a really good idea. So today, um, I think tahini is something we use almost every day here. Mm. And you can make, you no know, tahini, you think of kind of Middle Eastern dishes. However, tahini can really easily be used uh, in an Asian recipe. You know, if you put tahini and soy sauce, that kind of gives you your sesame mm. oil replacement. Mm. So today we're going to do a really simple tahini and the mint and uh, lemon dressing. Ooh. Super simple. Um, so it's two spoons of tahini, two uh, lemons squeezed, one little clove of garlic, a handful of mint, and you no, know, up you go with oh, your mint. Bl- yeah, mint, and then you put it in your blender or plunger, whichever you use, and that's it. Done, and it keeps for three days. So I would always recommend making more than you actually need. And you know you'll use it over the next few days. Um, I think people get a bit scared of waste. But if you've got something in your fridge, you tend to just use it. And you're just kind of, you know, this could be put in any kind of roast vegetables or could be put on Mm. meat or, I mean, the the options are endless. Okay, great. So so what's our first step here? So first step, we're going to start with what takes the longest for sweet potato. We keep the skins on it here. Mm. Skins are full of nutrients, so we're just going to brush clean the sweet potato, cut it up into wedges, so cut it up in half, and then kind of cut it up again in three to four inches bite sizes. Stick that in the oven, and we'll put a bit of paprika, olive oil, salt mm. on it. Mix it around with your hands. Put it in the oven, 180 for 25 minutes. What kind of ratio, like sweet potato to other, it's, is, is it taking You, you want it to be coated in, you know, nicely in olive oil. I always love putting my hands in when I'm cooking. You really want to get in there a good pinch of salt, mm. a good pinch of paprika or chili flakes, something like that. And then really go in there with your hands, mix it all together. You can't really go wrong. 
All right, you little sweet potato, <laughs> are you ready? So that's a sweet potato gone in the oven. Okay. Next, we're going to get the bulgur cooking. I really like bulgur because it's got a real nice bite to it. I never know in a supermarket because I just always go to quinoa because I know how to make yeah, it. Yeah, but it's the same. It's exactly yeah. the same. It's, you know, 10 minutes. I would say people always forget to add salt to the cooking water which okay. is really important yes okay um, and sometimes on the shy. package it says to rinse it first do you think that you need to do that well that's to get rid of the starch so yes you do. i can't say we always do it actually i don't do it at home i okay. usually t- just tend to cook but it gets okay. rid of the starch i'm like uh, is it dirty and it's not it's not this is dirty. really cooking for dummies I'm like, it's, it's, not dirty. <laughs> it's not dirty it's not dirty it's to get rid of the starch oh okay but it works just fine if you don't rinse it but I think people just always forget to add the salt to the cooking water. Okay. And it should important. almost taste like seawater. Mm, so Which, that's a taste. That's for taste. taste. Yeah. Okay. So, you no know, pasta water, right, all of it. People are really shy about salt. Yeah, I know it's not the best for you, but actually it's so God, good is it for delicious. cooking. Yeah, so good. Okay. <laughs> it changes a dish. That's a good tip. All right. So what's next? So what's next? We've done the sweet potato. We're cooking the bulgur. And then we've done our dressing. Really, we don't have that much left. The halloumi, the only issue I find with halloumi is if you can't prepare it. It has to be cooked a la minute, otherwise it becomes kind of plasticky within minutes. Mm-hmm. So that we're going to do really at the last minute. Because you're serving the halloumi ready. warm. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to grill it or if you're at home, pan fry it. Fresh off the grill. You're not like conserving yeah. it at the moment. Okay. Not exactly. So at, at the moment, we're gonna have, we can have a little break, a little okay. stop. Okay, am I allowed to taste some of your salad dressing? Yes, of course. Mmm. <laughs> I remember when I lived in London, you'd go to these pubs and they'd have a huge plate of salads, yeah. you know, as a side salad or just as a salad, and they would never come for one dressed. And if, they, if you ask for dressing, it would be, you know, this horrible, it would yeah. be already made dressing, yeah. store-bought dressing. Yeah. It's and I really think that's weird. quite an American thing as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, uh, it's just unacceptable. It's so important. I mean, the thing with salad is people think, I feel like people think it's a boring or, like, diet thing to eat when actually it can be one of the most delicious. You just have to know. Yeah. It's, I, I absolutely it. love it. And I noticed that your salads, like this recipe that we're doing, they're really filling, so you're not, like, going to be hungry an yeah. hour later. Well, people have them as a main. They're normally not sides. So, have you eaten, by the way? You look really I hungry. have eaten, <laughs> but I'm just, like, can't stop eating your your salad dressing. <laughs> I think what we do here is really let the ingredients speak for themselves. And that's the way I cook generally at home is it's very kind of ingredient-led. So, you know, I'll never go out and I'll rarely go out and buy stuff to following a recipe. I'm very lucky that in France we have markets available. Yeah. Uh, and really you can do, you can buy parts of a supermarket apart from your boring stuff and your quinoa mm. or your grains and stuff like that. But actually you could easily find a market every day in right. Paris. So you know you're buying seasonal. So I'm buying. Well. Se- I know I'm buying seasonal, and I know most of the time the market next to the house is just French mm. produce. So I'm buying local and seasonal, which we're very sports with in France. Yeah, but it's the right formula. It's the right formula, and so I'll go and I, you know, you speak, you get to know the people, and they say I've got really good artichokes this week. I've got really good, I don't know, tomato. So then you just I buy baskets full of different vegetables. Some meat, we've started now with Ash at home, sorry, my husband. We only eat meat Friday, Saturday, Sunday, because the market's on the Friday. So that's what we're aiming okay. for. That's good. <laughs> that's a good ratio. I like that. And, that's uh, responsible without being totally yeah, restricted. Well, we do. And then it means that when you do buy your meat, you're going to buy a really good quality cut of meat. Or actually not even a good quality, but something you know exactly where it's come from. Yeah. And you're treating yourself to it. It doesn't have to be expensive, because actually some of the cheapest cuts of meat you know which you can stew for ages a good beef bourguignon no they're the cheapest cuts but you still know that it's come from a really good farm and a good grass-fed beef i find that re- really reassuring <laughs> yes okay so when we take the sweet potato out yep. of the oven so we've got the sweet potato out of the oven you always for me you always dress the salad here we always kind of pre-dress it and toss it together rather than We'll add the dress, the vinaigrette at the end. Okay. I think it because it makes sure that's that really get impregnated with salad. So we're gonna add our greens. We're gonna get the halloumi going. The bulgur's ready. So you can put the salad leaves around, leaving yeah. a little pre in the middle. Yeah. Something ingredient-led cooking is the way you know, things are going now. Yeah, so you are building recipes around those ingredients yeah. that you are finding. At home and here, we, can, we, yeah. Yeah, we get all the ingredients oh, in. The, the, I mean, every time we go to your place, I'm like, how? 
Does she get these ideas? (laughs) They're so good. And Amy just looks so relaxed. And she's like having a glass of wine with you in the kitchen, catching up while just her little hands are just scurrying around. But you're not, c'est pas prise de tête. Like you're not stressing about it ever, which is a sign of a very good cook. But don't you think that's what cooking is about? Yeah, that's what what it should be about. But sometimes I get a bit stressed. But why do you get stressed? Because I'm not very mathematic and I think, oh, I've miscalculated it. I think. I think mess- we had this argument last night with my husband. But I think recipes are meant to be lived. They're meant to be alive. Yeah. You follow recipe just for inspiration. And then, you know, then you kind of let things happen and see where the ingredients take you. And if things get burnt, it's always going to taste nicer than something you bought in a store. Absolutely. In so anything you make at home is going to be nice. And you should really enjoy. And whenever I think of cooking, I think of friends and wine and boyfriends and arguments and heated conversations cooking should make you feel alive and you're thinking back hey where these ingredients come from so you connect with nature you connect with people it's a mean of like connecting you know that's what cooking's about i love it it's <laughs> true so that's right. really cheesy she's right you're gonna convert me okay so monica we're almost there we're gonna add our dressing so sorry we've put the salad then we've added the bulgur we've put our sweet potato roasted sweet potatoes added the halloumi on top going to put a little bit of our tahini and mint dressing mm. and i've got some uh, flaked almonds roasted yeah. flaked almonds we're going to put on top of oh, a bit of lovely. Lovely. so the idea for these salads is to kind of you know layer different flavors and different textures that's what makes the dishes interesting you have you know, the crunch of the salad the sweetness of a sweet potato the kind of saltiness of the halloumi and then the kind of fresh zingy dressing i my mouth is watering I hope so. <laughs> and a bit of pepper. And here we go. Thank you so much, Amy. That's okay, I'm Mom. very inspired. I can't wait to see what you're cooking for us someday. Oh, my God. <laughs> this salad. On me dit que nos vies ne valent pas grand-chose. Elles passent en un instant comme fanent les roses. On me dit que le temps qui glisse est un salaud. Que de nos chagrins, il s'en fait des manteaux. Pourtant, quelqu'un m'a dit... Okay, so now over our delicious salad, which is a great success, I just wanted to ask you, we're obviously living in a really specific time. It's difficult for a number of reasons, but let's talk about food in 2022 a little bit. Actually, when you told me the kind of title and the theme around this podcast, I actually had to use my brain and have a think about it. And the word that came up first to me was honest. I think the food... Honest, honest. It's about honest food. So firstly, honest food, I mean, we know exactly where we're sourcing our food from these days. Uh, so people can't hide behind uh, behind stuff. Everyone can find out where their food comes from. So kind of the food sourcing has become a lot more honest. Then in terms of the kind of supply chain, it's really been shortened. I mean, you, know, you see just outside. We are we right two, across the yeah, street. Yeah, right across the street. We have had two free shops in the last year which have opened up. Shops are selling direct from the from the kind of producer to us. You know, the middlemen have been cancelled out, and there's a lot fewer hands involved in the process. So, no, that makes the food cheaper. Thirdly, food has become more honest in the way it's being like served in restaurants. You know, we I've, I've talked about that already. Kind of French food, how it's changed, but people are very happy to just have a simple salad on their plate and something very simple. They don't need to go out to a restaurant to eat intricate, complicated food. Yeah. Especially if they're going out daily to eat. Yeah, which some of us yeah. often well, do. Lucky you, I'm kind of stuck in this kitchen, but yes, <laughs> which some some people actually do. And, and luckily Before for Mark and I had a baby, we would go out all the time, and it's not like we're some sort of millionaires. We love it. And when you live in a city like Paris or New York and you live in a small apartment, you know, that is the life, the lifestyle yeah. for a lot of people. So I think there's just a few things. I visit advice to you and Mark. Yeah, <laughs> we, we need it. Not that you're not good cook. I mean, Mark's all right. Mark's all right. You're, you're actually you're good. Every time I come, you do good stuff. But I think you shouldn't be scared about batch cooking. I know it's for some reason it doesn't sound very sexy, but batch cooking really helps. Now you could cook your sweet potato, two sweet potatoes at the beginning of the week. Then on day one, make a salad. On day two, it can you can make a, a dal or a curry out of it. I always have a can of coconut and some. I buy actually the store-bought uh, curry paste. And you just put that and whichever leftover veg, so you've got a curry on your third day, whatever's left, make a big soup out of it. It's always, you just have to... Okay, so you're using leftovers. I'm always away. using leftovers. Here, if we've got you know, all the kind of herbs which are looking a little bit sad, we'll maybe kind of 
green sauce or salsa verde. Yeah, because I think you mentioned before, people are scared of waste. I'm definitely yeah, scared of waste. It's, it makes me anxious. It makes me anxious yeah. as well. But then, and, and it makes me anxious pulling something back out of the fridge because I'm like, oh, how long can I really keep this for? Especially when you're a kid, you're like, don't want us to get food poisoning. Yeah. But you yeah, just... you don't give really food. Unless there's mushrooms going no. on it. No, okay. <laughs> I think you don't. I mean, meats and fish, it's different. But veg, you can see it. I think people get really wrapped around become sell-by dates. Yeah. For one, if you bought your veg and you've had a sell-by date, you bought it in the supermarket. So really, I'm not saying you've done wrong, but... <laughs> veg, no, you can see it. You can see it and you can smell it. Okay, you can't use your senses and your, your and your common sense and work out if it's, you know, if it's good or not. But I think using the byproduct of what you've cooked, I love... I actually find it so fun and creative to, you know cook something and then think okay what am I going to know if we do a risotto then it's going to become arancini mm. there's always you know if we have oh, here we have old baguettes which we don't use every day so yesterday we made breadcrumbs oh croutons yeah, exactly yeah. very good one or breadcrumbs and then you use it to kind of you know, add a bit of crunch to a salad or mm. put it on top of a gratin that's or, a good idea it's like you can always do something make something out of something at one point it comes to an end yes but you've done your kind of Upmost to kind of not waste. I feel like I'm going to start sending you photos of what's left over in our fridge, Go and then you can it. help me come up with recipes <laughs> for, for it. it. That's it. What's in your fridge? Amy, the fridge cleaner. Yeah, <laughs> can be your new Instagram handle. I'm going to go for it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now. We are heading to Jamaica's north coast, to the cool hills of St. Anne, to hear from Lisa and Christopher Bins, the owners and farmer chef team behind Stush in the Bush. I first discovered Stush in the Bush about five years ago now. It is one of the most unique places I've ever seen. It's a farm, so a full working farm with fruit trees and you know, every kind of plant that you can imagine. They grow the food that they then cook for you. So this is their story. So I want to share with you the magic that is Lisa and Christopher, their love for each other and for their food and stush in the bush in Jamaica. So first, would you mind telling us what is Stush in the Bush, and who are you guys? Do you want to start, Lisa? Mm. So, Stush in the Bush. Stush in the Bush is a labor of love all the way through. And Christopher and myself, I would say, is all about the Stush, Lisa, and the Bush, Christopher. And I think for us, it just means, you know, we want a certain je ne sais quoi. Does it mean fancy? It does mean fancy. It also means a little shishi fufu. So for me, I think it's all about bringing that to the bush. Where are you from? So originally I am from Barbados. I grew up in New York and then I met this sexy Rasta. <laughs> Who is he? He's Who's right Rasta? here. Oh, this okay, Rasta. Okay, okay. A sexy Rasta. And then I just Rasta? in Jamaica, amazingly enough. We're in Jamaica. We met at Somerset Falls in Portland. And I mean, after that, it was pretty much all she wrote. And were you already in food? I was not. I was totally in education. And it's funny because even in food right now, I feel like I am continuously educating people about food and about how plants can be your everything. Mm. So mm. I want yeah. you to educate me on that. But first, I want to hear quickly from the sexy Rasta. <laughs> That's a good one. What were you up to before you met Miss Lisa? I was in the bush. Yeah, the bush is, it's kind of like where everything originates in a sense. It's um, St. Anne, 2,000 feet above sea level, where my family has lived for generations. It's a free village emerging from colonialism and emerging from slavery. We ran away from the plantation and settled up in this dense, hilly woodland that would offer a sanctuary from the whips and the chains. And What's the village called? Freehill, 16th of April, 2009, was the day we got married. Mm -hmm. We met 
February, same year, 2009. <laughs> so if you're counting, that's two months after we met, we were married. I know. It's yeah. like a whirlwind. Guys. Definitely a whirlwind. How did you know? You know, I have a certain philosophy. I really believe that when you know, you just kind of know. After we met, we went to, I went back home to uh, New York and told my mom all about Chris. And five days later, my mom passed away. But before she passed away, she when I was telling her all about him, she basically said, this is kind of what I've been waiting for. So it was one of those moments. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's timing too. I think both of us were kind of reaching a point in our lives where we were looking for something, I don't want to say different, but definitely different. I mean, Lisa was in education for years and in New York for years. I had moved back to Jamaica from Canada about 12 years up to the point where we met. And I was trying to find myself within that bush that I grew up in and trying to establish a future. And also, it was a kind of like a transformation from going in this life you were living where you were totally isolated, just planting food, planting herbs, planting herb, and coming out after you get lonely. Mm. You go through life um, kind of pursuing your dreams and finding yourself, and then you find yourself, and then you find yourself alone, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, surprising. So there was a point in myself where I said, okay, well, I think it's time now that I found that person that I could spend the rest of my life with. And nature, the universe said, okay, you really think so? Well, here it is. and. We were at this festival. I was actually sampling a drink that a mentor of mine had produced. We'd kind of helped him to do that. And I was there pouring and an energy or a voice or a power just said, look up. And I, when I looked up across this crowded space of hundreds of people, I was looking directly into our eyes. And it was that moment that just, just took me away, far, far away. And I was in this space where just swirling through space. And when I landed, the gentleman that I was working with was standing right in front of me. Lisa was right next to him. She had her hand and she took her hand, put it in mine and said, you know, hi, Lisa, this is Christopher. And Christopher, this is Lisa. And this is debatable between the two of us. But I think at this point he said, and by the way, Lisa, Christopher is available. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, that must be a sign. <laughs> About four days later, I get a call that. from the same gentleman or his wife, actually. He's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just coming home from work. He's like, so Lisa's here with us. Do you want to come, come see us? Mm -hmm. So I <laughs> dashed out the house as fast as I could, put on some clothes, and we met in Ochirius. We tried to have lunch. We didn't eat. We were talking the entire time. There was all kinds of interesting signs like birds swooping down from the heavens, crowding around us. And, you know, it was just really, really powerful. And I felt within myself that, you know, when the universe gives you that one shot, you have to give it back that same energy. and. Yeah, we were married two months later. Before that, I made my first mm -hmm. trip off the island since I came back from Canada. In those 12 years, I had not left the island, hadn't been on a plane, haven't really traveled outside of the village. Like nothing. Nowhere. So I was on a plane to Barbados for the funeral, met the family. I was thoroughly mm -hmm. grilled, of course, because you know, it was a Rasta. Have you, did you grow up with Rastafarianism in your family? Like No, my family was not just no Rasta, they were very anti-Rasta. Mm -hmm. There was this, I wouldn't say anti-Rasta, but there's a Jamaican, kind of like a prejudice, I think it is, where people think that Rasta is like, you know, it was a negative thing. There was no hope for you if you decided to go this way, which was kind of true. There was very limited opportunities for getting a job, you know, most Rastas are always self-employed. They were doing creative work, artwork, or they were planting food, or there wasn't really an opportunity for you as a Rasta at that time to walk into a 
bank, for instance, and fill out a job application because you would just be flatly rejected right. just based upon how you looked. So how did you come to the lifestyle of the faith? You know, to be honest, I had this weird vision. Mm-hmm. And in this vision, I was looking at a picture on the wall in my family home. And on the, in this picture on the wall, you know, you always had the members of the family and there was this Rasta man on the wall. And I was like, who is that? You know, we don't have any Rastas in the family. And there was something about that image and there was something about all of the Rastafari that I ever met had this amazing angelic sense of unconditional love. They were always giving you something no matter how little that they had. Mm. Always kind, always teaching, always gentle mm. as well. So that was something that I, I couldn't understand, but it just was pulling me my whole life. Mm. And it took a while to kind of break away from the family expectations from my own expectations, because for years I was ball-headed, I was playing basketball, so you had to have that shine head and, you know, that look. And within me, there was a whole different person just saying, nah, this isn't you. You know, you gotta really forget what people are saying, go against everything that you think you believe in. I was very anti-ganja at the time as well, because, you know, that was part of the whole thing. And it started very, small with listening to more reggae music because growing up where i grew up in winnipeg it was work it was rock it's like credence clearwater revival the stones <laughs> eric clapton which he still listens to yeah these are okay. great artists there yeah. are but i wasn't listening to any reggae What is the bush? What does it represent? Yeah, the bush, I think it's an African word terminology in a sense, because even when we were in South Africa, they had this thing about going into the bush. So it's like the hinterland, it's the woods. It's anything other than like where you find the mainstream part of life. So the family typically had, we had a house that was kind of close to the main road. That was home. And then when you left home and you went to the land that was off the main road, off the beaten track. Right. That's um, the bush. That's the bush. Yeah. And it was often where you found your food, your medicine, mm-hmm. your All solace, your recreation. It had everything. It had everything. And I always longed for that because there's no bush in, in Winnipeg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and if, it, if it was there, it wasn't mine. Mm. You know what I mean? You mm. could visit it. You could experience it. But there's something about just being in a place where you feel the energy of a whole lifetime, not just your lifetime, but your ancestral lifetime, all of that just sitting in front of you, calling you, welcoming you. It's very mm. powerful. Yeah, so. And what is Aital eating, cooking? Aital is something we actually have been rediscovering a lot lately. Mm-hmm. The origin of it is Rastafari way of life. So it has something to do with food, but Aital is what you call your liberty. So your liberty, in its true sense, is living according to what you believe in. So you have a lot of people in life that believe in one thing or the other, but believing in it and living it are two different things. So the liberty is how true you are to your beliefs, how close you live to what you believe in. So Aital, is a liberty. It's how you live according to what you believe in. And of course, it's vegetarian, vegan, it's environmentally conscious. It's, oh, it's plant-based. It's plant-based. Yeah. Plant-based. And it's natural. Very you know, natural. so it's much more about how you're living in harmony with um, the seasons, how you're living in harmony with what's available to you locally and what you can grow yourself and eat yourself and, you know, just that whole aspect of things being as natural as they possibly can be. There is a way that you can grow food where you're just exploiting the soil. Mm -hmm. So you use all of the inputs to get the most out of you can out of it. And it's efficient to a degree, but it's what's happened to 
farming generally now where it's it's the most farming practices are have very negative impact right. on not just the soil but the whole environment yeah. and also on yeah. the people that are if you're consuming food that has the residues of poisons in it to me that's got to be dangerous because if you if i gave you a big plate of food and say you know it looks great flavors are great but i've just coated it with four or five different types of poisons you'd be like what <laughs> you wouldn't eat that yeah and you would think i yeah. was crazy yeah but that's what roundup is and right. that's yeah what our food source consists of yeah it's yeah. poisoning the seed it's poisoning the water, the, table. the water table it's poisoning the environment because all of this that you think is just going to grow this plant where does the residue go so ital at its core is about that future that we're leaving for the next generation mm. about regenerating soil regenerating cultures regenerating forest environments regenerating people mm. so lisa you grew up in new york mm. how would one go about trying to bring a bit more ital into one's life in a major city like that Mm -hmm. What am I going to fill my fridge and pantry with to turn over a new leaf and become a more plant-centric eater? January for me is still, if I was in New York, it would still be cold, obviously. And so I would love to be able to be baking bread myself. I would love to be able to be having some hearty soups and stews of things that are reminiscent of home that still have a little bit of turmeric and ginger in them. Um, so like you root know, vegetables. Root vegetables. Um, you know, hearty coconut greens, milk. coconut milk, always coconut milk. Yeah. I mean, if so you're going to go. So and nice yep. and rich. And also just all of your leftovers making lots of stock. Yeah. To be able to kind of make those soups and stews and things of that nature, just to kind of like warm the body and be a bit more thoughtful about being quiet. Mm. I want to ask about cheese because for a lot of people being plant-based is quite scary because they love cheese, which is understandable. Same. Cheese is wonderful. Me. Yeah. Me. But me. you make the most astonishingly delicious plant-based yeah. cheeses. How yeah. hard is that? What do you need to do that? You know, um, I think it takes being a little bit inventive. Also, obviously, a little bit of research just as to how sort of certain things react together. One of the things that we use quite a bit is our root starch. Mm. And because our root, it, you can get our root here. Obviously, you can dig the plant and have all of that. But having our root starch is just one of those things that helps everything become a little stretchy. And then also almond and feta and just to think, you know, almond and cashew, just to think about how those cheeses can kind of like turn into something that you just don't miss everything else right. you know you need a strong blender some cheese you need cloth. a you need a you need a vitamix you need a vitamix no sponsor <laughs> if you want to sponsor us send us an email totally <laughs> you know it's but, but like, you do you need a blender is, blend you need you need a powerful blender yeah. and a cheese i mean cloth. we actually definitely a cheesecloth but we also we have three blenders in our kitchen right, right. because there is no getting to cheese without it's the main source of tech for plant-based eating it is yeah and i mean it just gives you such a wealth of all of the different flavor profiles that you can kind of assimilate into your kitchen mm -hmm. i mean it just makes everything better i love our almond feta i think it's amazing the ricotta i think is amazing it's creamy you can make it sweet or savory so how do you make the ricotta so the ricotta is basically the milk yeah, from the almonds. And then it has an acid that helps it sort of like coagulate. Mm -hmm. So you definitely want either, we use lemon, mm -hmm. obviously, but you can also use apple cider vinegar if you okay. had to. But ideally speaking, a little bit of lemon skin, a little bit of salt, and you just kind of like cook it and it just becomes this whole thing. And then you drain it just like goat's cheese. Same situation. Wow. So you, the longer you drain it, the thicker it becomes. Right. And then you can add herbs, you can add fresh zest you can add you know just a little bit of olive oil to loosen it up if you need to and it's just something that's just so versatile so i mean it's one of my favorites i also love the feta i have to say 
And for that, we kind of heat that up a little bit, add a little agar so that it has that kind of, it keeps its shape, Mm. you know, but we also add sea salt and lemon peel and pink peppercorns, or we add pimento and rosemary and, you know, a little, or we add thyme and scotch bonnet, however you want to sort of play it, you can play it. And it's beautiful. It's a really, really, really beautiful thing. So the mozzarella is coconut based and that is really lovely as well. And it just, I don't know, for me, it's not, it's not a missing. And I'm finding now that I'm wanting to get to like a harder cheese. Mm. So a little bit more experimentation is going to kind of, kind of go to that as well. But I love all of what we've done so far. And the fact to be able to kind of like cut out cow's milk completely is just ingenious. Mm. Okay, before I let you go, I just want to ask one more thing, which is, can you describe to me, just paint me a visual picture Mm. of Stush in the Bush? It's the quiet of the morning. It's the sun rising. It's the birds making those first sounds of the morning. It's the dew on the leaves. It's cooking together. It's planting together, putting seeds in the ground, watching them come from this tiny little seedling till they turn into a plant. And then it's the, and the hope clean air. And the promise and the so day clean. when you can take that seed that you've planted and reach over and pluck it. And it might be a pineapple, it might mm-hmm. be a sweet pepper, might be a grapefruit, might be a bunch of arugula. Might be a pumpkin. Might be a pumpkin, <laughs> might be a squash blossom. But it's that whole process of going from seed to plant, to fruit, back to seed again. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's forever in every day. That was great. I hope it made you hungry. Glorious. I'm so inspired. I'm going to rush out to my local market now before it closes because uh, it's evening here in Paris. Emma, thank you so much for enlightening me. And thank you to our guests also for giving me the the 411. <laughs> I've been taking notes furiously and I hope you have too. Thank you, Mon, for being such a great student. I hope maybe you'll teach me something about what to wear in 2022 at some point. That can be arranged. I have lots of stock in my, um, well, in my closet, but I'm going to have to start uh, storing accessories in my freezer soon, I fear. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll know to look there next time I'm over. But no, because you'll have so many frozen bananas. You won't have room for- Well, this is the conundrum. Thank you. Please email us fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. Rate, review. Yeah, if you like us, let us know. Rate and review us on iTunes. It means so much to us. See you next time. Thank you to our producers, Matt Bentley-Viney and Joel Grove. See you next time.